morning, everyone. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to E3. I want to welcome you to the last sixth week of uh, this series that we're calling In the Garden. Uh, if you guys were here for the beginning of this series back at the very tail end of, of February, we have been taking a look at Jesus's life the episodes in his life that shaped him into a person who could uh, stand and kneel in the Garden of Gethsemane and pray what I believe is the most powerful prayer in his life, in his ministry. Not my will, but yours be done. And I believe just real quick that the reason that this is the most powerful prayer of Jesus's ministry is the garden is the last chance that Jesus has to either avoid being arrested because he's avoided it before or to bring about his kingdom through force and military uh, strategy. That's his last chance to do that. Uh, there are guys with him with swords and he has avoided arrest before and yet for some reason at that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, not my will, but yours be done. The kingdom is not going to come through force. It's going to come by submission and torture and my crucifixion. So that's why it's the most powerful prayer. And we've been taking a look at his life with the idea that you can't just wake up one day and pray that prayer that you can't wake up one day and just go, you know what, I think I'm gonna pray the prayer, not my will, but yours be done, because let's face it, it's a radical prayer. It puts it all on the table. And you pray a prayer like, not my will, but yours be done, and you just don't know when God takes you up on that prayer, ooh, watch out, because your life may get turned upside down. So we started with the assumption that the events of Jesus's life shaped him into being able to pray that prayer, starting with his baptism, when he hears the voice of God calling him the beloved, you are my son who I dearly love. And if you wanna pray the prayer, not my will but yours be done, you have to know at the deepest level of your person that there's a God in heaven and that he loves you and that he says yes to you. And then we looked at Jesus's time of temptation and trial and testing in the desert with the idea that if you wanna pray, not my will, you have to allow yourself to be tested because testing clarifies who you are. So when Jesus comes out of the desert, I think he knows even more clearly that he is the beloved. And what's more, testing produces inside us this thing called perseverance and a little bit of faith that we can get through trials and that God can still be with us. And then we looked at the idea that Jesus doesn't show up in the Garden of Gethsemane never having prayed before. He has a prayer life. He has a connection to God. He knows his Father intimately. So that when the push comes to shove and it's time to pray the prayer, he's not winging it. He knows this God. And then last week, Pastor Mark talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the idea that Jesus asks us what we have to give to his ministry, what's in our hands. And today we're gonna look at one of the last episodes in Jesus's life. It actually syncs up with Palm Sunday, which is what we're doing, what we're celebrating with kids coming in and waving palm trees like the crowds outside of Jerusalem did. 
We're going to look at that story of Jesus' life and how it shaped him and led him to just a few days later be able to pray that prayer. But before we get there, we need to go back to a very uncomfortable place for most of us. We need to go to a place where, in biblical terms, they call a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We need to go to high school English class. <laughs> Some of you are still in that place, so I, I, I apologize even more so. And for those of you who are English teachers, if I mangle anything that I'm about to do, please forgive me. So, in, in high school English, some of us in junior high English, we learn something called literary structure. Anybody with us so far? You look at any story in the Western uh, literature, and you can divide it roughly into four, five, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less parts. Every story has a structure, and the structure is simply this. There's an exposition. You're introduced to the characters of the story. You find out who they are, what their background is. Then there's a time of rising action. Something happens to the character. The plot line moves forward. They begin to be challenged. They begin to go on a journey. Something happens that advances the plot. All the way to a point of climax or crisis where the action is the most intense. And then after that, we go to a period of falling action where things get you know, the pressure kind of gets let off a little bit, to a time of resolution. And this is simply the way literature works in the West. Almost every story, every movie, you could diagram according to this structure. So, for instance, if you asked your high school daughter, as I did, to diagram The Great Gatsby, which she did, it would look a little bit like this. And I put her name on it so she can be responsible for this. So I get the... I'm going to do the next couple, but if she gets this wrong. So she says uh, that, the, that the beginning part of Gatsby, the, the flashback is all the exposition. The rising action happens through the corruption of the American dream. Uh, the, the point of climax and crisis is when Gatsby dies. And then, huh? What? Oh, <laughs> take it up with Emily. Uh, uh, <laughs> It's been like 30 years since I was in high school English. So anyway, then a period of falling action, everyone dissociates, and then Nick returns. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. So you can do this with movies too. All right, so for instance, recently in my house, we watched Divergent, which I actually thought was a really great movie. I really enjoyed it. So Divergent looks again, and I'm sorry if there's any spoilers. I'm trying to be gentle here. So Divergent looks a little bit like this. We introduced in the movie to these things called factions and the characters. So these factions rule over post-apocalyptic Chicago. And then uh, the main character, Beatrice or Tris, she chooses a faction that is not her parents' faction. She goes against convention. She chooses a faction called Dauntless. And so through the period of rising action, we learn what it means to be in that faction. And she has to learn to fight for herself. And she has to learn to have a different type of personality to uh, eventually the point of climax or crisis, which I think is when this plot to take over Chicago through a mind control drug and, and four, everybody remember four? Anybody seen the movie four? He's so dreamy. Um, <laughs> four falls under the spell or whatever of the mind control and it's like, oh no, awful, awful. And then uh, four wakes up, which is good. Uh, they fight against the plot and then there's victory or is there victory? Because look, there's a sequel coming out like even now, right? Um, you could also do this with another one of my favorite movies, um, Zoolander. 
So Zoolander looks a little bit like this. Starts off, we get introduced to Derek Zoolander in his world of male modeling. Uh, the rising action happens when he loses male model of the year to Hansel. Remember Owen Wilson's character? Uh, Derek is then hypnotized by Will Ferrell's character, Mugatu, into tricking, into assassinating the prime minister. And it, it, the, the, the action gets greater and greater. The tension gets higher and higher until you guys remember the scene with Owen Wilson where they're trying to, they're trying to break the plot up and they're like, wait, the files are in the computer? Uh, maybe, maybe you just have to be my age. So luckily, Derek wakes up in time. They defeat the plot. Derek gets the girl. And then the resolution, he opens the school for kids who can't read good and who want to learn to do other stuff good too. <laughs> Let's stand for closing prayer. Um, so... This is the way story works. This is the way story works. And, and let's face it, uh, our culture loves story. You know, if you just, if you take a 30,000 foot view of story, you know, you have stories in movies, you have stories in books, you have stories in Netflix. You, like we are consumed, obsessed with story. It's how we spend our time. Um, and every story not only has a structure, but every story has what I would like to just put in your head is, is every story has a hero, okay? Every story does. And heroes don't have to look like guys who carry swords or, or girls who carry swords or guns or whatever. Uh, heroes can, can take any shape because really all a hero is is the person that moves the plot along. They're the person that gets off their tail and goes on the journey. They accept the challenge. They move the plot forward. So I was thinking about heroes this week and actually I was gonna ask you guys like just tell me who are some of your favorite movie heroes? Thor. Thor? Okay, good one. Who? Maximus, Maximus from Gladiator, right? Wolverine. Wolverine. What's, like, okay, so these are really like mm, characters. Um, the, original the original Superman, like Christopher, Christopher Reeve Superman. Okay, these are all good. Um, I looked up this week, I looked up the 100 greatest movie heroes of all time according to to the American Film Institute. This is like a legit uh, organization. So according to the American Film Institute, I'm gonna give you the top five movie heroes. Now, before we do it, uh, a hero, according to the American Film Institute, is a person who undergoes a challenge, exhibits great moral courage and persistence and uh, in, in overcoming adversity. Okay, so they're looking at hero as a very specific definition. So number five yeah, anybody know who this is? Oh, yeah. Gary Cooper. Character's name is Will Kane in the movie High Noon. Number five. Number four, most popular movie. Casablanca. Character's name is Rick. Rick Blaine in Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart. Number three. Did somebody just go, oh. <laughs> I heard that. James Bond, James Bond and Dr. No, not an American uh, character, but he left a, a stamp on American culture for sure. Number two, most popular hero of all time. Yeah, okay, there we go. Everybody become more familiar with this. And the number one movie hero of all time, according to the American Film Institute, is Atticus Finch, To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, here's something I found out about American Film Institute. It is obviously made up of old white guys. Because, like, when I looked, I was like, 
I barely remember any of these movies, and I'm an old white guy. Um, I was shocked. I was really shocked. But, but you know, when I read their rationale, um, and in fact, uh, I wanted to share with you guys then sort of my top five movie heroes in my house. And again, I am also an old white guy. So uh, these are my favorite movie heroes right now. So number five, this isn't technically a movie, but Arrow, okay? Big fans of Arrow in my house. Um, just really fans of the... the number four, kind of anti-heroes. These are the guys from The Wire, a really great cop show. Number three is uh, the new James Bond, Daniel Craig, pretty big fan. Number two, Christian Bale's Batman. I got to say, we're suckers for that. And uh, my number one movie hero, no. Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Those are my top five movie heroes. Now, the one thing that a hero has to have, does not have to carry a sword, does not have to carry a gun, does not have to go on an epic quest, does not have to fight dragons, doesn't have to fly around in a cape. A movie hero and a hero has to do and have one thing, and it's this concept of agency. And all agency is, is the ability and the willingness to act, to get up out of your chair. Okay, Frodo never leaves the Shire. The Lord of the Rings is about 15 minutes long instead of 12 hours. <laughs> a, a hero can do a lot of different things, but they have to do something. They have to act. They have to have agency. And this became a, a game-changing thought for me as a follower of Christ and as a student of the Bible when I began to understand that Jesus had agency. And in a way, I would say, like, that kind of makes him a hero in my book. But it was this idea that I wrapped my mind around that Jesus was not just a guy that everybody loved. He was not a guy that just healed people. He was not a guy that preached, that only preached or did miracles. He had agency. And what I mean by that is that he got off his tail and he acted in particular ways. He owned his part of life. And he advanced his story. He advanced the plot of his story in very specific ways. And what we're going to do is take a look at one of the last episodes of his life. And in the way that he exhibited agency and acted in a particular way that got him into a lot of trouble. When you understand that Jesus had agency, at least for me, um, I began to understand how courageous Jesus was and actually how brilliant he was. That he was not a hick. He was not an idiot. That he was intelligent, intentional, brave, courageous. So, if you have your Bible, uh, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start reading right in verse 1. This is right towards the end of Jesus' ministry. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. He said, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. Then Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So, uh, what's going on in this story? Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for the last time. He's coming at Passover. He gets close to the city. And all of a sudden, he's like, you know what I really need in my life? I need a donkey. Get me a donkey. As simple as I could put it, you need to know that Jesus is not tired. He's not tired. He's like, he's not, oh, you know, I've walked for three years with you guys. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm probably going to get crucified. Can I just, you know, ride for the last half mile? That's not it at all. Uh, in fact, if you read the Gospels, Jesus never rides anything until now. So what's going on? Why does he need a donkey all of a sudden? Jesus in this moment exhibits agency. He takes control of his story and advances it in a very particular way. He's not tired. He could just as easily stroll into Jerusalem with his cool sandals, his Jesus sandals that I'm sure he's wearing, but he doesn't. He says, no, right now, I need a donkey. Fetch me the donkey. So the disciples go, get a donkey and the donkey's colt. Garments go on it, Jesus rides, he comes down, he's coming down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, everyone's freaking out. They're cutting palm trees, they're throwing their cloaks on the ground. Uh, basically what is happening is they are welcoming Jesus to Jerusalem as a king, okay? That's what's going on in the story. But there's a few things going on behind the story that I wanna bring to light. The first thing that I want you to know is that Jesus knows his Bible pretty well, I think. All the answers in Hebrew school, he's probably got it. And his Bible is our Old Testament, okay? His Bible is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He knows it. He lives it. But from a scholar point of view, uh, the writers of the Gospels and Jesus also they gravitated towards different sections of the Old Testament more than others. They knew all of the story, but there were sections and books of the Old Testament that were more important to Jesus. He quotes them more. He alludes to them more. He acts them out more. They meant more to him. They said something about what was going on in his ministry. So for instance, the book of Psalms means a lot to Jesus. 
He quotes it a lot. It's, it's his prayer book. It's the words that he uses to worship God, to cry out to God. So over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus quotes the Psalms. He prays the Psalms. It's more important to him. The book of Isaiah is very important to Jesus. He alludes to it. He says, if you want to know what kind of guy I am, what kind of Messiah I am, what kind of Savior I am, hey, go read Isaiah, where it talks about this figure called the suffering servant. You want to understand Jesus, go read Isaiah. But that's not all. Uh, the book of Daniel, possibly the most important book to Jesus out of the Old Testament. Jesus calls himself in, in different gospels, he refers to himself, maybe you guys have heard this phrase, the son of man, son of man. And that can mean human one, it can mean human being. But most scholars believe and I believe that he's actually referring to Daniel who uses this phrase, son of man, an awful lot. And when Jesus does that, what he's telling you to do is go look at Daniel. This is the type of figure I am. It's the type of savior I am. It's the type of Messiah I am. Book of Daniel, very, very important. And there's other books, but one of the other books that is very important to Jesus in his ministry is the book of Zechariah. Anybody read Zechariah lately? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, it's a minor prophet in the Old Testament, not real long. Zechariah uh, wrote and lived around 700 BC. And he wrote at a time when the nation of Israel was in exile. They lived in Babylon. They were taken away from the land. They were hungering for a time when they would return to the land, return to Jerusalem. And Zechariah is divided in two, the book, uh, the book is. About the first eight chapters of Zechariah all revolve around these dreams he has at night. He has these dreams and he wakes up and he tries to use the dreams to interpret what's going on around him. But then the last five or so chapters of Zechariah all turn and they revolve around Zechariah looking into the future and describing things that are gonna happen when God's people finally get out of exile. Because they had this belief that, that they were not gonna die in Babylon. That God was gonna someday bring them back. And so Zechariah 9 through 14 talks about this time when God was gonna finally set their story right because they had a story. They had a story. In fact, if you looked at that literary structure, I just did this this week for fun, you could diagram God's story in the same way that we diagram the, the stuff at the beginning of our time here. Uh, the exposition would be the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. Then something breaks. We leave the garden God says, I'm gonna set things right. So first he calls Abraham, then he calls a nation, but things don't go well and there's this rising action that's going on as, as the nation is struggling. And then finally, actually at the top of that pinnacle should not be Jesus and cross and resurrection. It really should be the Jewish version of that that says that someday the Messiah is going to come and he's going to defeat evil, and he's going to uh, cleanse the temple, and he's going to renew the covenant. That was the Jewish version of this story. That at the climax of all the action, and this had not happened yet for the Jewish people. They were anticipating this someday. 
And then uh, for the Jews, the falling action would be the kingdom of God and then eventually the time that everything ends at the end. So this is their hunger. This is their hope. Zechariah is writing at a time that's anticipating that. And so fast forwarding back to Jesus outside of Jerusalem. Fetch me a donkey. Why do you need a donkey, Jesus? He's Jesus. Just go do what he says. They bring a donkey. He gets on the donkey. People go crazy because they know what this means. These are signals to them, visual cues of what's happening. And basically what's happening is that the Messiah is coming to Jerusalem. They recognize this. This is their story. This is their hope. The king is coming to Jerusalem. It's time for the Messiah to defeat evil, cleanse the temple, and renew the covenant. But Jesus doesn't roll into Jerusalem on his, in his sandals. He rolls in on a donkey. And he's saying, if you want to know what's going on, Go read Zechariah. Let's go read Zechariah. We can do that. So in Zechariah 9 is the exact quote that Matthew uses. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Bam, there it is. So he's basically saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm coming to Jerusalem. Therefore, the hopes that you've always hoped for, the defeat of evil, the defeat of all the pagans, the, the cleansing of the temple, the renewing of the covenant, it's all happening right now. No wonder people are, are celebrating. No wonder they're throwing their cloaks on the ground. They're welcoming their king who's gonna set them free. What a great time to celebrate. Except there's another thing that's going on underneath this. Now, Jesus, as I said, acts with great agency. He chooses how he's going to come into the temple or how he's gonna come into Jerusalem. Not in his sandals, on a donkey. The first question I want us to, to, to wrestle with tonight or today is, how are you doing with agency? If we throw out the idea that a hero has to have a sword, that a hero is simply a person that advances their story forward, do you have agency in the story of God? Jesus tells us that part of his life is marked by the ability to write his own subplot within God's story. Are you doing that? Jesus says, fetch me a donkey. It's time for me to own my part of this story. The question I have for us this morning is, are you doing the equivalent of fetch me a donkey? I have something to write here. God has a story and I wanna write my part of it. There's a playwright named uh, David Mamet and he's written a bunch of screenplays, a bunch of plays, very, very famous, very, very good writer. And he says essentially this, that we all have a story, we all live by a story, 
That's what we live for. And there's two thoughts that I want to dwell on in that quote. We all live by a story. And if you're a person of faith, your story is basically Jesus' story. That there's a God, that he loved this world so much that he sent his only son not to condemn it, but to save it. That's the story I live by. If you're a person of faith, if you're a Christian, that's the story you live by, some form of it. There's a God, he's in control. It's gonna be all right. But then the other thought is that we all have our own story within that. And some of us need to own up to the fact that we haven't been writing anything. That we have lost our agency. That we've stopped advancing our own plot forward. And though Jesus says, go fetch me a donkey. I am owning my life right now. I am owning the decisions that I'm making right now. Sometimes we shy away from that. And as I was thinking about this just last night, I thought there's a few different versions of of a lack of agency maybe that we struggle with. So maybe your life looks a little bit like this, that you started, you were born, and your character was being developed in your story. And then you got a little bit older and the action started to rise in your life. And then there came a moment of the most intense action and something happened. There was a climax, a crisis happened and then your story stopped. And you have advanced in years but you haven't advanced past that moment of crisis or climax. And you stopped writing. You stopped having agency at that moment. Or maybe your story looks a little bit like this. You were born and then the conflict started to escalate and escalate and escalate. And all of a sudden, the person you become is angry and resentful and there's no end to the tension. And the life that you write has no agency except the rage that you feel inside you. Maybe your story looks like this. You were born, the conflict escalated, you had the moment of crisis, and then the tension started to dissipate and it just went down and down and down and down and down. But what's missing? There's no resolution. And what this looks like is a lot of passive aggressiveness where you pretend that you're not angry anymore. But let's face it, the digs, the pokes, the hurt that's still there, but you've never opened up and taken agency to reconcile and resolve the conflict that was in your life. And what does it look like? A lot of times it looks like three simple words. I forgive you. A lot of us, that's what we need to do to start exhibiting agency in our life again. Lastly, maybe your life looks like this. Maybe you were born, your character's been developed, 
and you've never picked up the pen. And it's time for you to get in the game. Now, some of you guys are young. This is not an age thing. Some of you are still learning who you are. Some of you are figuring out who God is and who you are. It's not time for you, but some of you guys have seen 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and you've never said, hey, it's time for me to own something. Fetch me a donkey. And it's time. It's time. Jesus exhibits agency. We should too. And the stories that we can write are, are amazing and incredible. Like the story that Pastor Mark shared with us last week. You want to take agency and write a story that, that is laced through with generosity. That unleashes resources so that a young man in Haiti can walk. Or that you can unhinge and wipe the cobwebs off of your checkbook and let resources flow into the kingdom in amazing ways. Or maybe the story you write is full of compassion and love. Where you see somebody hurting in your life and you put the brakes on and say, I'm not gonna walk by this person. And you open up your home, your heart, your ears and listen to their story and try to bring some healing into the world. Maybe the story you write, the agency you act with is laced through with reconciliation. And reconciliation isn't a matter of like, well, okay, I have this hurt in the past with this person or with this family member and now let's reconcile. So tell me, tell me I'm right. That's not the way reconciliation works. Reconciliation starts with you saying, I forgive you and let's make this relationship right. Not by conforming to the desires that I want you to have, but just by acknowledging that we are still human beings on this planet together. Maybe your story is laced through with invitation. It's a word we use around here a lot. And you know somebody in your life right now that could stand to use an invitation to church. <gasps> Did he say that? Oh, I hate inviting people to church. <laughs> and you could just acknowledge the fact, like, look, Easter's a great time to invite people to church. We are not really weird. I mean, we're all a little strange. You know, and you could say to somebody, hey, you know, it's Easter. I know a lot of people go to church on it. You know, our, 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 the music's okay, and, and, and the pastor is going to talk about, he's not going to tell you you're a sinner. He's not going to wag his finger at you. He's going to talk about how much God loves you. And next, next week, he's going to talk about what life in, in the light of a resurrection, a life of power and joy and love can feel. Do, do you maybe want to come to church? Don't hit me. <laughs> maybe that's the story that you want to write. And so when we take a step back and we look at this, when Jesus says, I'm coming to Jerusalem, that the way you could say the last thing he says about how not my will happens is when you are willing to write your own subplot within God's story. That you don't just passively let life live you, but you pick up the pen and say, I'm going to engage in my little corner of this thing called life. Because God's writing this grand story of redemption. And boy, wouldn't it be cool if I get in on it instead of sitting on the sidelines? 
That's how not my will happens. But you have to know the story. You have to know God's story. You can't just say, okay, all right, I'm gonna write my own subplot and it's gonna involve me getting a whole lot of money. My own subplot is gonna be filled with me getting the best of everything because that's not God's story. You have to know the uncomfortable parts of God's story as well. Starting about 20, 30 years ago, biblical scholars began to discover that when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, like we have here in Zechariah 9, that if you really want to understand what the writers are getting at, you don't just look at the quote they allude to, but you look at the entire passage of Scripture. So in other words, Matthew says, hey, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, it's to fulfill Zechariah 9, but you shouldn't stop at Zechariah 9. Because again, Jesus is saying something about his approach and his arrival into Jerusalem. And we have to know God's story. So if you went to Zechariah 9, 9, we see the quote, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph. Your king's coming. He's riding a donkey's colt. It's awesome. He's humble. But then if you looked at the next verse, you would discover that Jesus is saying something else about his kingdom. It says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. Well, if your hope as a Jewish person is that you're gonna defeat Rome, I think that war horses and chariots are a pretty good place to start. What are you saying, Jesus? You're taking away the war horses and the chariots? Wait a minute. How are we gonna defeat our enemies, Jesus? Let's look at more verse 10. I will destroy all the weapons. You, wait, what? How are you gonna, de- you can't destroy the weapons, Jesus. How are we gonna defeat Rome? How are we gonna defeat our enemies, Jesus? We need swords, we need war horses, we need chariots. Jesus, why won't you come into Jerusalem on a war horse? Because I'd get that. Let's all get out our swords and bust some Roman heads right now. I get that. But Jesus is like, no, look at Zechariah 9. Look at Zechariah 9. If you're gonna look at Zechariah 9, you might as well look at Zechariah 10. When the Messiah comes, He's gonna come humble and he ain't gonna use no swords to defeat this enemy because the enemy's not Rome. The enemy is this thing inside the human soul called brokenness or sin, evil. And you can't use no sword, no chariot, no war horse against that. So the king is gonna come I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. So whatever story you're gonna write has to include peace. The the subplot that you're gonna write has to mesh with God's story. And furthermore, if you were to take just a look over at a few more chapters later in Zechariah, In Zechariah 13, he says even something else about this kingdom. Zechariah 13, verse seven, is this vision that Zechariah has of the future. And he says, strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
Does Jesus ever refer to himself as a shepherd? The answer is yes. So when Jesus says, look at Zechariah 9, he says, your kingdom's coming. The, the king is coming. He's going to be humble. The king is coming and his MO is for peace. It's not force. He's not gonna fight a battle. He's not gonna pick up a sword for you. And furthermore, he says that this kingdom is gonna come by being killed. This Messiah is going to die. And he says all that when he says, fetch me that donkey. He says, I'm gonna tell somebody how this is gonna go. Agency. I am gonna write this story in God's larger story. And it is not gonna involve this life that goes always up and to the right. It's gonna be marked by suffering and by death. And so if you wanna write a story of agency, your story has to conform to this as well. You don't get to write a subplot that differs from the main plot of the story. In just seven days from now on Easter, we are gonna celebrate the resurrection. But now, people of God, now E3, it is our time to turn our attention to the walk that Jesus walked when he came into Jerusalem. Because his steps led straight to this. And these people that shouted his name and proclaimed him, King, Hosanna, the Messiah has come. In just a few days, we'll be shouting, kill that Messiah. Crucify him. Because he's not the Messiah that we thought we wanted. But Jesus told him in Zechariah 9, this is the way I am. This is the story I'm writing. So we're shifting gears now. And Thursday, Thursday night prayer vigil, Friday is our time to remember Jesus' walk to the cross. But it starts now. So Katie's going to come up. She's going to read a portion of scripture with us again. We're gonna read together, I think, Psalm 31. This is our time to begin reflecting on the cross. Because that's the story that we live in.